Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Empowered Leader Podcast. My name is Katherine Yazzie, and this week's episode is a continuation of my conversation with my dad, Dan Yazzie. Um, I released part one a couple weeks back, and this is the second half of that conversation. It's a little bit longer than the first episode, but there really wasn't any good stopping point. And honestly, it just made sense to release this as its own second part. We talked a lot about just organizational culture, team dynamics. Um, My dad shared a lot about a specific process he used to use to have the team and have folks feel a lot of ownership over their work and including people in the process of solving problems and coming up with solutions and how important it is for people who are doing the work to feel really inspired and empowered that that they have a voice. And we also spoke about, you know, his own career experiences. Most notably, before he retired, he had the opportunity to take an international assignment in France and work with a team in Paris. And I just thought, I always have thought that was so cool that my dad would decide to do something like that, to go work in a country where he did not know the language. Um, you know, he took French lessons. (laughs) Um, I just don't think a lot of folks with as much experience as, as he had at the time, you know, would, would necessarily choose to have that experience and to start over in so many of those ways and to throw himself, you know, throw themselves into a, a brand new deep end and have to learn a lot of things. But, um, It was really just such an honor to chat with my dad about all these things. Maybe he'll come back on and we'll deep dive into another topic. But um, yeah, I hope you all enjoy. You'll you'll find we like to joke with each other a little bit. Um, Both my parents are engineers and have engineering backgrounds. So you'll, you'll hear my dad, you know, kind of making some generalizations and jokes about engineers and, and their working styles and personalities. Um, Fun fact, when I started working at HubSpot, my first title there was support engineer. And I'll always remember my dad asking me if he could tell his friends that his daughter was an engineer too. (laughs) And it was funny because it's something I kind of rebelled against a lot as a as a kid. I felt like I was more of a right-brained creative person with two very left-brained engineer parents. So it's just funny to kind of hear that in our conversation. And also just I think that it's as I've gotten older, I've learned like we don't have to just be one thing. We are we are always, you know, on a spectrum of, of all those things. And I think it's it's funny 
to just reflect back and, and how it felt like I needed to make a choice when I was younger to be one thing or the other. And now as I'm in my thirties, you know, thinking really what I'm able to do now is just embrace all those different sides of myself and know that one is not better than the other. And that all of us really are made up of all these different parts and so yeah, just just one one kind of thing I've been reflecting on after our conversation and after re-listening to it and editing it as well. Um, you'll also hear my dad mistakenly call me my sister's name, which is a classic dad move. Um, and what else? Yeah, I think one of the main lessons that I just wanted to highlight before we hop into the conversation is I think my dad brought up in the conversation around the importance of trust and about recognizing and understanding that in an organization, you know, there's this hierarchy, there are folks on different levels, all those levels work together, but really having that perspective that you don't live in your boss's world or your boss does not live in your world and how important it is to have trust and have that personal relationship to be able to communicate when things are being asked of you that you may not have any context or understanding of, of the why. And, you know, that mentality, but leading with the, the empathy of like, maybe I don't understand this, but that's just because I don't, I'm not that person. I'm not approaching it from the same vantage point. And that idea, you know, on a macro level is something I've been really contemplating. I've been reading, well, listening to on an audio book, the book cast by Isabel Wilkerson around, you know, social hierarchies and, how our world is structured around these things. And I just think that that idea of getting to know someone first, that human level and, and being able to hold the space for them to share what life is like in their world and not, not try to push your way on them or, you know, gaslight them and not believe their experience just because you don't experience something that same way. I just, I just think there's something so important about that. And as I was re-listening to this conversation last night and, and editing it a bit, um, it just, you know, I don't know. I, I think those themes just really jumped out at me, especially because of, of the book. And just, I've been doing a lot of deep, deep thought on that as well. So just a little primer. I really think that you're going to love this episode and I hope that you will learn something or just in he enjoy hearing my dad and I riff back and forth about work and life and the World Cup in Paris. <laughs> this this part of the episode, you know, in this part 2, I feel like we've we've gotten warmed up from 
those first 30 minutes. So I think we're a little bit more lively, a little bit more uh, warmed up. Yeah. So I hope that you will enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and for your support. If you've been liking the podcast, um, it'd be amazing if you left a review or rated us five stars on iTunes. It really helps or Apple Podcasts, rather. Um, It really helps other folks find this podcast. Please share it with anyone who you think would enjoy. And until next week, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day, rest of your week, and take care. I think uh, one of the things I picked up on from one one of my mentors was, he used to call it servant leadership. He prided himself on facilitating and supporting. And I know he did that with me and it helped me do that with, with others. Think about your best bosses over the course of your career. I mean, you, you'd go to the mat if they supported you and they understood you and they, and they helped you in your career. So that, I think that goes a lot to helping getting, getting the success you need in your project is if you can be a a boss that, that people want to want to work for. Yeah. (laughs) They want, you know, they want to do the, they want to do their best. Yeah, that person. And that comes from the person's personality and their and their behavior. Uh, you have to have your values have to resonate with their values. So it's, you know, not, not everybody can be the perfect boss. Not one person can be the perfect boss for everybody because right. everyone's different. Right. Right. Yeah. I'd also say to, you know, I think the same goes like, whether you want to be a good boss or you want to be a good employee serve the people and help the people around you, even if that's your boss. I think that's one thing I always tried to do was understand like what was on my boss's plate so that I could, if I had time or I had insight into something that they weren't seeing because of, you know, just the way that organizations are structured. Like, I think that's something people don't talk about enough is that you you can find a way to be helpful. <laughs> like it probably all, you know, in, in a lot of these situations and it just takes you asking and feeling. And I think there's a way that like, I always try to do that with my employees, like tell them, Hey, like what's going you know? And, and I think that's part of being a good leader too, is delegating what you're working on to people so that they get new experiences and they're excited about like a new project. But, um, I think like if, if anyone listening feels like, Hey, I'm not in charge, I'm feeling stuck and bored. Like ask what your boss is working on. Like ask what else is going on that you can do. And, um, you can be proactive about that. And, and more likely than not, your boss is going to be psyched that you want to (laughs) help out. Yeah. I, I think that that awareness is, is, is really helpful. In fact, I can remember going back many years ago, one of my bosses told me a story. He said, so-and-so, he happened to be the, the president of the company, wants me to do this. He said, I don't know why he wants this. It didn't seem important to him, but my boss was smart enough to know. And what he said is, I'm going to do it because the boss lives in a different world right. than I do. So whatever influences his thinking, he may not have time to explain it to me, so I understand it. But just the fact that, obviously, if there's trust. <laughs> with yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> just the fact that he trusted the boss and the boss said, do something that sounds stupid to him. He still is going to do it because he's smart enough to know 
he doesn't know what the boss knows. He doesn't right. get in the same world. Right. You know, so the president, he's got to deal with um, the customers' presidents. He's got to deal with uh, his board of directors. He's got to deal with all sorts of things that that the underlings don't don't understand or don't deal with every day. You can put that at any level you want. The first line supervisor has to deal with managers and directors and the, the actual people working for that supervisor aren't in that same environment. So they don't understand. So I think if there's a lot of trust and it's important, it's gotta be done in a, in a hurry. The leader can just say, I need this done and, and, and just trust me, it needs to be done. If you're building that relationship, you know, spend a little bit more time explaining so people understand why, why it's important. Cause it may not, may be obvious to you, Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, it's often not obvious to the person you're asking to do it. Yeah, no, it's so real too. Cause I also think, you know, having that, that attitude of like wanting to, wanting to help and be helpful. Like I, I think you have to have that trust and you have to put your own opinions aside sometimes too. Like if that, you know, you're, you're talking about your, your, that person, like maybe he disagreed with it, but he still was able to put that aside and say, you know what, I'm going to do this because this is what was asked of me. And I'm, yeah, I know that I probably don't have the whole picture here. And my, like, first, what I want to do is help my team and help my, my people and my, my supervisor look good. And I, I think that's advice I've gotten a lot is if you help your customer look like a rock star, if you help your boss look like an amazing manager, like that's all going to be good karma that comes back to you and ultimately makes you more successful. And that was a mindset that I tried to really embody is like, how could I help the people around me look great at their job? And because that would ultimately reflect on me and help all of us get better. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you say, when you say you might disagree with it, I, I would say maybe don't understand it. If you disagree with it, you should probably have more discussion. Yeah. Yeah. To find out why why this is being asked, because maybe maybe it's against policy. Maybe what they're being asked is is against yeah the right thing to do, and they don't they don't understand. So if you disagree because of something important, you know, not just I don't feel like doing it, um, <laughs> then you should yeah. you should push back a little bit and have that discussion so you better understand it. Um, but if it's just that I don't know why I don't know why he wants that or she wants that. Uh, just do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, they're, they're asking you for a reason. And uh, I'm not saying that's un- a universal truism, but it's uh, it's something that stuck with me that we don't live in the same world as our, our leaders. Yeah. So we're not going to understand everything that's being asked. Yeah. And- yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And is re- it's so real just because of the way that organizations are structured these days and these like you know hierarchies everyone's operating at different levels and having different conversations and so right now I'm, I'm reading a lot of articles about you know internal communication and internal marketing in organizations like and the importance of being able to communicate to everyone no matter where you're at like what are we working towards what's going on and I think it's because of that everyone's so disconnected based on based on the structure but yeah, yeah. coming back to like yeah, your that, own you have to you have to understand like where you're at what your vantage point is 
and how to use that to your advantage. That's, that's kind of how I thought about it is like, okay, what are my, what do I have like a front row seat to that other people don't? And how can I, how can I use that knowledge to solve a problem, like a real business problem that no one knows about yet, or improve something, improve a process and make it 10 times better. And like, yeah. Yeah. We used to, um, we used to do that communication, education, awareness through metrics. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it would come out of that problem reporting process that I described. But like there was, there was an occasion where we were having um, issues with, we're having a, an audit, a regulatory audit and they were looking at engineering work products, mostly calculations. And they found some things that we weren't aware of. They were critical of things that our engineers and managers probably wouldn't have even noticed. If we, mm -hmm. did, if we did the audit ourselves, we wouldn't have even noticed that as a problem. So they were like, it was an awareness thing. It was like attention to detail. So, the result was still right, right? The system would work, everything would be safe. Yeah. But the, the, uh, a third party, especially a regulator or a customer reading it or looking at it would say, this is a piece of junk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't done with care. It might've had pages misnumbered or you couldn't follow the pages or it might've had uh, typos or it might've had other things that don't affect the result, but to a person looking at it, it's saying, huh, I don't know. So what we, what we learned on that, and we had a whole education thing with everybody, so I'm heading. Um, yeah. Is that <clears throat> what we learned is that things that may not be important to the result, <clears throat> but are important to the stakeholder or the customer, um, that it, it ended up, um, losing confidence. It, the, the regulator lost confidence or could have lost confidence in the result. They said, well, if you, if, if you're doing this, how do I know the result is right? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it cast a, it cast a shadow and I struggled with attention to detail because having excellent products that met my definition, right? And customer, it was these attention to details, things that frustrated the heck out of my, my customers. And again, it cast a doubt on the, on the good work that was done. Right, right. And so that took creating metrics. We'd, we would, um, oh, we had, we had one thing, we, we looked at all the customer comments over a course of six months or something. Mm -hmm. And we did Pareto charts and all the you know, <laughs> graphs to, to, to rank them, okay? And make it really visible. What are the problems we're making? Yeah. And it was procedure compliance, okay? It didn't affect the result, but we, oh, why did you, you didn't, you, you didn't get the page numbering right. Well, there's a procedure for that. Okay, it's a procedure compliance. What, don't you care about the procedures? So we got all this, we got into trouble with, issues that really shouldn't have been a problem at all. And it took education through making it visible, creating yep. metrics, 
having group talks and changing the culture so that they were, the whole organization was sensitized to these low level issues weren't really low level if the customer thinks they're a big deal. Right. And that, that's, how, that's how we educated people is with metrics. Yeah. And it sounds like that's just changing what the, what the expectation is of the people doing the work. And exactly. the metric is that tool that is objective and can help align everyone around what's expected. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's huge because then you have a concrete, you know, ideally you set up a metric that is so uh, objective that there's no arguing about it. And then it's just like, you either did it or you didn't. And, and that's, you know, your goal. Um, what we also did, Catherine, was... Um, it was more than just a training and an expectations that the individuals are not following the procedure. The vigil individuals are not attention to detail. You got to go underneath that. You got to keep asking why, why are they not following procedures? Mm. Why are we? And it was usually some process issue, not the person. Yeah. It was usually some process issue that drove it. We didn't give them enough time. Okay. The procedure is lousy. Okay. Yeah, they don't <laughs> um, have the right tools. <laughs> yeah, so there's all sorts of things that the, the management of the team, leadership of the team can do to facilitate the expectation that you're looking for. It's not just work harder, don't make mistakes. Yeah. You got to understand why these issues are surfacing and make them less likely to occur by, by improving the process. Yeah. I think that speaks back to what we were saying about, you know, root cause and using, asking questions. Right. Why, right. why, why? Like, you know, not as a way to be obnoxious and trying to, you know, pepper someone with questions, but genuinely curious, like, I help me understand what's going on here. So you can have that, that, that clear understanding of what's really happening. And then to your point too, like, that could spark, oh, hey, we need to, we need to update our system around procedures, or we need to create a new training. Um, there is some framework, I don't know how many wise, but there's, there is some communication technique around asking why, I think at least like three times to, to really get to the heart of something. Exactly. Yep. And you so, can miss and, so much if you don't do that. Yeah. And in my business, it was, the cause of the, the cause of the event, call it an event or events. Yeah. This, the resources you applied to the cause was scalable to the importance and significance or the frequency of the event. So like, like I think what I said before, you know, if it's something that is of no consequence and it hasn't happened a lot, it's just find and fix. That's the, yeah. that's it. Yeah. But then we had a whole scale from there, from um, what, what I think they called it an apparent cause. Okay, so that's something with very little training. Somebody can go look at look at the event, look at what happened, maybe make a few phone calls and write it up, and they're done. That's the apparent cause. Yeah. And then they go up in, into level all the way up to uh, a full root cause team. 
Mm. Root cause team has a lot more training, a lot more rigor. Um, you're following a, a set a set protocol. It might take weeks. Mm. Now, some significant events in the nuclear industry that they've had root cause teams. Uh, I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to be on a couple of them, and uh, <laughs> you know that's that's what ha- that's what happens. You really dig in, and it's much more in depth because you're really trying to eradicate it, make sure this never happens again. Yeah. And, and find out what happened. It could be anything from organization, could be it could be very uh, deep seated issues that need to get need to get worked out. You're not gonna you're not gonna do that by one person asking his buddy what went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you when you talk about the kind of weighing the severity is it is it right to say that like is it severity over time to fix was that sort of the the axes uh pretty much yeah i don't know if severity is the right word but the effort you put into it needs to be fit the crime you know <laughs> yeah, to, yeah yeah you know so what what but things could get escalated what could start out as an apparent cause if the same thing happens again and again right. and again, you up it and you go, wait a minute, we're missing it. We're, we're, we got to go deeper. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is it's just, it's reminding me of like bug categorization <laughs> in the software world and how to your, exactly what you just said of like one annoying bug. Like, you know, I remember in, in past jobs, like an email wouldn't send and you had like the customer had to, you know, clone the email and reschedule it for it to actually send correctly. Like, okay, that's a one-off, not that big of a deal. It's not going to be the highest priority, but if 10 customers call in and say, what the hell is going on? This is really obnoxious. We bump it up in engineering and, and push for some resources on that one faster. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. I feel like, I don't know if we've ever talked about this specifically in depth, just how many crossovers there are between (laughs) I mean, I guess engineering as a, as a thing, yeah. it's similar, but. Yeah. I mean, people say nuclear, oh, we, you, you know, it's so structured because it's so important, but think about it. There's a lot of software out there. That's pretty darn important too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, like medical software so, and so, right. yeah, everything. Yeah. So the and you have crafts, you know, you, you're building yeah. any power plant. I mean, there are, there are yeah. fossil fuel power plants that are, that are running at uh, supercritical pressures and temperatures. So, you know, every, yeah. everything in society, we're in a, a technological society, there's, there's risk. And so you yeah. need good processes to, you know, to get it right. Yep. We've talked about this a lot, but we talked about, you talked about having to make those tough calls and those decisions of when to alert a client when something's going wrong and, I think I read on one of your blogs about decision-making that they, that, you know, some sort of framework, like what, what um, systems or tools did you use to, we've talked a few about a few of them, but is there anything else we haven't discussed yet about decision-making you wanted to share? Um, well, when it, when it comes to um, a problem, like, you're hired to solve a problem, mm-hmm. you know, and it needs some kind of design change, a change in the, a change in the system, a change in the design. Um, if it's, if it's a, 
multidisciplined issue, if it's complex, if it's uh, schedule critical or money critical, regulatory critical, the more things that it that this problem touches, the more the again, you got to scale up this this decision making on what how to how to solve it. And so you could have a very simple problem. The pump broke. Okay, we're going to give you a new pump. And, and maybe it doesn't require a big decision analysis. It's pretty obvious what you're, what you're trying to do. But you might have a, a situation where um, it's not obvious what the solution is. And it's important. Then you, uh, what we used to do a lot, and what I, I used to... Um, really enjoy this process. Uh, it's based on the Kepner-Trago decision analysis process. Uh, this, they wrote books on it and uh, um, it, it, I, I made a few tweaks to the process as, as I learned uh, what worked in our organizations. Yeah. But, but it, the, the basic idea is to get a team together, people that have knowledge in the area and not just in one area, you want people from different disciplines. Okay, so maybe it's mainly a mechanical problem, but you'll have civil structural, you'll have electrical, you'll, you'll have multiple people that know about this problem. You'll have the construction because oftentimes what the engineers come up come up with, if the construction construction people aren't involved, most likely they're not going to like it. So they have to be, <laughs> they have to be involved. So the, a multidiscipline team. And what you do is you yeah, it's structured by the KT process with my little tweaks. Um, what we used to do is get, first you'd have a little training session. If you haven't done a KT analysis in a while, you teach everybody what, what it's all about. Then you'd create a problem statement. Sometimes the leader or the management team would give you the problem statement, but I liked it better when the team itself come up with the problem statement. Mm. And the test for the problem statement has to be, if my solution addresses the problem statement, oh, oh, will my solution address everything? And does my does my problem statement, if addressed, solve the problem? Okay, are we, so you first have to define the problem, then you have to test your solutions against the problem. Yep. Uh, and then we used to, um, at, at that point, we'd collect data. It depends how, again, we could do it all in one day, it could take a week. Okay, depending on how big a problem it is and how important it is. Uh, I found that once it's once after two or three meetings over the course of a week, you should be very close or you need to stop and get more data. Uh, and of course, engineers always want more data. So I, I used to try to <laughs> avoid that as much as I could. But uh, so you got to understand the problem. So you got to you got to go out and you got to collect data, talk to people, make sure you understand the what is the problem? Make sure you know what the requirements are. What does your regulator need? What does management need? What's the yeah. budget? What's the schedule? Because you can come up with a great technical solution, but it can't be completed for three years and they need it in six months. <laughs> right. It's not, you gotta, you gotta rule it out. And then, so after you collected the data, then you, um, then you create the, the requirements, the criteria. This is the criteria you're gonna, you're gonna judge the, uh, the solution against. In Captain Trago, they used to call it the, the musts and the wants. So some, some 
criteria is a must. It's on off. It either meets it or it doesn't. Yeah. There's no gradation. Then there's the wants, which might be we, we want it to cost less than a million dollars or wh whatever it is. Um, the wants are not, they're a gradation. So you can rank them. We used to rank them from one to 10 or one to five just to get a number, number to them. And then you can wait. Then we used to wait the criteria. So maybe cost was the not, maybe safety was overriding criteria. That got a weight of 10 and cost got a weight of five. You know, well, I'm just making this up. But the team would get together and assign weights and agree on the weights, like a consensus. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. All the time with consensus. Yeah. So now you got a framework in place to start testing solutions. The first thing we do is brainstorm. Again, this is where the team knowledge is important. Because if you don't have the right team, your brainstorm is going to miss maybe the best solutions. Okay, especially if you're trying to do it in a short period of time. You need the experts on the team. And because they most likely they know the best way to solve the problem. They just need a we need confirmation and validation through this through this process. So you get a you get a group and sometimes you might you brainstorm, there's no judging, right? So everybody throws it up and you write on sticky notes or whiteboard or whatever, and you get all these ideas out, and then you start to what we used to do is kind of collate them or consolidate them. So maybe Tom, Dick, and Harry each had their own idea. You put them in together because they all related. So that's solution set number one. It's got what Tom, Dick, and Harry said. They, they seem to work together, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. In the end, I didn't like to have more than three or four, some maximum of five different solutions to, to now go further. So once you get a solution set, now you start discriminating. Now you start evaluating. You, get, you evaluate it by the team. I used to like to try to have the team do it individually, like a closed ballot. <laughs> <laughs> so these are our these are our five criteria. Take we got three solutions, potential solutions. Go ahead and rank them, and then go ahead and rank them one to five. And then we talk about it and have the what's the reason? You know what? Why do, you, why, is, why do you think that's so important, Harry? You know, that kind of thing. And you end up trying to get consensus on what the group thinks the rank is. And this is where you got to be careful because um, if there's a real powerful voice, a dominant yeah. voice, or there's, there's some timid people or you know, the smartest person in the room that has the best answer might be afraid to share it because someone else is gonna poo-poo it. Mm. So you gotta be careful about groupthink and really make sure everyone has a chance to speak. And that's the, we used to assign a facilitator to the group. Yeah. That facilitator's job was to understand that we need to hear from everybody. We need, it needs to be balanced. We can't have one overpowering voice, whether they're right or wrong, you can't have one overpowering voice. Yeah. Try to get a consensus. Consensus is takes time. Consensus is hard. Um, and if you need something done in a hurry, you can't. Consensus doesn't always work. You're going into battle. You can't have a consensus right. of, of, of what. But on these teams, consensus seemed to work. You could you could you could keep working and working until you got consensus. And my opinion was, um, consensus 
was our best chance at getting a, law, a solution that would stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. Like something that would actually work, something that is doable, something that you won't have to change halfway through it. If and something good consensus. Yeah, and, and I think the theme that's like, I'm hearing through the whole thing is you, from that tweak that you talked about at the beginning of letting your team come up with a problem statement, effectively what you're doing is giving them ownership over the problem. You're not saying, hey, you're not dumping a problem on them and saying, hey, this is the problem. We all are responsible for fixing it. It's like, okay, tell us what's going on in your, from your point of view, like what is this problem? And, and right. giving them the authority. And I think, you know, <laughs> that is super empowering to say, hey, maybe I'm not the best person to, like, you, like, like what we were saying, we don't live in each other's worlds. What's going on from your point of view, right? Like, what is this problem? And then designing a system that is actually teaching the team how to, how to make good decisions and what is valued by the organization and by the client. So, to me, that almost just feels like this process is a great way to, to help people develop in their career and hopefully teach them these skills that they can then apply to future problems too. And, and yeah, the facilitation yeah. thing is a good point. I remember reading research, Google, I don't know, I probably have talked to you about this before in the past, but Google actually has a whole department that studies management and studies team dynamics and it studies why some teams are more effective than others and like you know really has come out with good research about actionable tips that leaders can use to build successful teams and one thing that has always stuck with me is that idea of you you need everyone to speak and there's power in if you start a meeting with everyone saying something, even if it's something small, that has been proven to influence like how people feel about speaking up later in the meeting. So I think that it's, it's, it's cool that you've also seen that that was a uh, crucial part of this process is, is creating conditions where people feel comfortable speaking up because humans <laughs> have a really hard time sometimes separating confidence with competence that's that's also yeah. been a proven thing and we can i, I mean that's gonna you know we could go in a whole other direction there with like bias and everything well, but. yeah i was just gonna say that's a whole <laughs> other topic team, team team building team dynamics oh my god um, yeah we used to kick off projects if once we want uh, want a new job we'd get the client management and our company's management together we'd go out to a uh, a dinner somewhere. And then after the dinner, we'd have a, like a little team building session where we'd talk about these, these issues that you're talking about. And one time I gave it, I gave everyone a test and asked them, it was kind of risky ask them, because I forget what the book was. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books on, this was on team, team building or team teams. Yeah. Maybe it was on dysfunctional teams. I don't remember. But there's a life cycle of a team. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when they first come together, there's infighting and distrust. <laughs> storming, norming, right? conforming, performing. Something Maybe. Like that. I, I don't forming, remember now. But... Forming, storming, norming, conforming, performing. I think that's what it is. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> whatever it was, 
I would, the I gave everyone, they had to fill it out and they had to say, where do you think we are yeah. on, you know, on this continuum? Yeah. I've done that before. Course, it's fun. Most people wimped out and gave them a higher number than they really believed. <laughs> <laughs> I learned later. They yeah. didn't really believe what they were saying. <laughs> they didn't have trust that they could be honest. No, absolutely not. They did not have trust that, that uh, they, oh yeah, we're nicey-nicey, but uh, it wasn't happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, you mentioned that and this was one of your last projects was going on your international assignment to Paris. And I know you took French lessons. And as we're talking about team dynamics, the thought of like working cross-culturally is coming to my mind. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about that experience. You had never worked internationally before that. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I used to tell people the only foreign country I ever been to was California. <laughs> oh my <laughs> <The> God. <joke. laughs> they couldn't, they couldn't, Catherine, when I went to California with my Boston accent, they couldn't understand me. You don't they even really, have literally. a Boston accent. <laughs> That's... Well, I did, I, they thought I did. And I really, they could not understand. I'm in a meeting and they say, what, what did he say? <laughs> Really? Well, Did you just talk yeah. really fast for California? Because I feel like California, they're so like, or I guess you were in more Silicon Valley, but there is that laid back atmosphere and environment, whereas we on the East Coast are a little bit more high strung. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, they, I mean, they were fine. They, I, I got along with everybody. It's just they, they literally Couldn't had a hard time understanding my accent. Which blew me away. So, anyway, um, that's why I used to say they're the foreign country. Um, now, in France, but France was very different. It was true. France foreign. was a foreign country. <laughs> yeah. yeah, France was France was amazing from a personal experience standpoint. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's right up there with one of my favorites. Um, the people. It took a while for them to warm up to me. Some of them never really did warm up to me. And I think the language barrier was part of it. The culture barrier yeah. was part of it. Um, but over time, um, uh, I think I was able to be somewhat effective, although I did feel I had like one hand tied, tied behind my back most of the time. So it's, it was nowhere, nothing like, going to another project in this country with a, a whole different US organization that I have to learn and figure it out and, and be effective or be be me, whatever that right. is. I felt, <clears throat> I felt I could have done a lot more if I had more cultural connection. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. but I, the people were good. Um, um, the, the people were great. I mean, they, 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 I learned a lot. Um, uh, I, I realized that, um, and if this, this I guess, Sean, initially, I was one of the only English-speaking people on the team, and then over time, uh, a couple more came on, and one of them was a senior manager. That uh, barrier, and the language barrier with the culture barrier was huge, 
And uh, I'm sure I didn't overcome it with too many, but the few people that I needed to make progress with, uh, I did. Uh, and, you know, I also noticed the way they do business was a lot different, a lot different. Yeah. Like that uh, problem reporting thing that was, it's at the time I went over there, it was huge in this country. Yeah. It was like in the nuclear industry, it was like second nature. They were like 20 years earlier, I thought. They were they had it, but it wasn't robust. Yeah. Wasn't what I expected. Yeah. Um, and then, then the planning and scheduling, well, that's another one of my passions. Is like I probably should have been a scheduler. I really loved scheduling. That was one of those, <laughs> that was also one of those tasks that I I did myself and I shouldn't have, you know. <laughs> but uh, their planning and scheduling with from my perspective was non-existent mm. and it used to frustrate the heck out of me but that's the way they did things so i tried to introduce it as where i thought it was helpful but it never really it never really got to where i i thought it needed to be yeah and that was probably just that's the way they've always done it they didn't they did they did they had a system i'm not saying they didn't have a system it just wasn't as obvious to me how they could hand, possibly handle all the activities going on without a more robust planning effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point too, is like, like, it sounds like you have the awareness, there's probably, this is just the way that they've done things and that like, there's, there might even be a reason that you don't know, like why it's done or not done in a exactly. certain way, right? Exactly. And yeah, because um, yeah, I think anytime you're working with someone from a different culture or like, you know, even people in this country, like we all have different backgrounds. You can't, you can't assume and you can't come into a team or a situation and try to just force all your ideas on people. And, and I think that it sounds like you took your time to kind of understand the landscape. Maybe you, you don't understand their language, but like, you know, the human mannerisms and you can like read their body language and, and pick up on like little things about them, even though you don't have a language in common. I think that's like one of the coolest things about. Yeah, you know, well, I, I have to say, I, I have to say, thank God for the, but my peer that I worked with very closely day in and day, he's, he spoke English. Yeah, very well. And he from the very beginning, he showed me the ropes. And uh, uh, what was his name? Help, again? I, Marius. Mar yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, thank God for, for him because um, I don't think I could have lasted a week without without his support. Yeah. Yeah, isn't, didn't you run into him on the World Cup? Was that, did that really happen in Paris? Oh yeah, yeah, we were, well, L Lauren, right, uh, young, yeah. our youngest, came and visited us and Judy, my wife was there, Judy, and uh, and Terry, Aunt Terry, and uh, we picked up Lauren. Now I lived in the outskirts of Paris. Yeah, you did. The, I don't know on the uh, what's it called the RER RER line. Yeah. The subway line. Yeah. <clears throat> so I wanted to go down to a winery on the day of the the World Cup. Well, Catherine, uh, Lauren is pretty. Um, Persistent. You always we, mess our names up. Yes. <laughs> and so we said, all right, all right. After 
after much debate, we ended up, all of us, hopped on the RER, went into Paris to try to watch in Paris. It couldn't just be in, in Orsay. It had to be in Paris. <laughs> um, so we got on the RER, went into Paris, and the streets were just full of people. All the bars were overflowing into the streets. Yeah. And we just went from one to another. We were sitting outside this one that we could get access to the bar, out really out in the street because so full. Everybody was having such a great time laughing and cheering. And yep, up walking up the hill, there comes Marius and his wife. And I'm saying, wow, what, yeah. a, what a small world. So he got to meet uh, my family and we had a good time. Yeah. You guys are, we're on the same wavelength, I, I guess. <laughs> cool. Um, is there anything you would do differently looking back on that experience? knowing what you know now and everything you learned, like you took French lessons, you made friends. I remember you, <laughs> we'd be like, you'd be texting us, you were in an Uber, <laughs> having late French dinners. Like, what would you, I guess maybe what are some of the highlights and what would you do differently? Okay, so I'm not sure I'd do anything differently. Um, I, I would have, what I regret is that I didn't have more impact. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to have been more helpful mm -hmm. to the cause, to the project, to the team. Uh, but the barrier and, you know, just basically showing up without any knowledge. So I guess what I regret is not having spent more attention when Mrs. Parvanian, my seventh grade fr French teacher was trying to teach me French. <laughs> <laughs> that it, go, it all goes back to that. If I had, if I had understood, and I, I was, I was, I, I think she's saying, "See, I told you so. I told you so." <laughs> but she was a, she was a teacher that I had no use for because I had no interest mm. in French as a middle school kid, junior high school kid. I had no interest in French, and it came back to bite me because. I help. really, I really needed it, you know, and uh, so that's my only, that's my re main regret is that I could have been a little bit ahead of the curve on the cultural barriers and the language barriers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, in retirement, I'm going to fix that by doing a lot of traveling once the COVID is over. Yeah. Doing a lot of traveling and, uh, and seeing, seeing, uh, it being exposed to all these different cultures in that great world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that even if you weren't that interested in it in, in middle school, you had the chance to go and, and learn it again. And I think it takes like bravery to take language lessons as, for someone. So, you know, like I feel like adults don't normally go set out to go work in a foreign culture country and like totally put themselves in an uncomfortable situation like that, going there alone and having to figure everything out. So I always yeah. thought that that was cool that you were so open to yeah. that and like enjoyed it and didn't view it as a, viewed it as an experience, you know, and something. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I was working for a big enough company that they knew how to do it. They put people all over the world. Right. So, you know, 
the French lessons were offered to me. Right. You know, they they helped with my accommodations, setting them up. They were very, they know how to do it for international uh, people. Yeah. So that I'm very grateful for that. It was, it was great. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to share or give advice about? I'm sure there is, um, yeah. but I can't. <laughs> We've been talking for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, we can always do a part two, and I'm I I'm sure I'm gonna split this one up into at least three episodes. So, <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Dad. It's been great to talk with you. Well, I feel honored, Catherine. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> of course. Um, where can people connect with you if they want to connect with you? Um, what do you mean by connect? Like, like an email or a text? <laughs> uh, well, usually people talk about their like LinkedIn or Instagram, or if you want to plug your book. I, I, yeah, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. I don't remember what my address is on LinkedIn, but I, I am on LinkedIn. But I, actually, I don't really go on it that often. <laughs> uh, okay. So I I do miss a lot of people trying to connect. Trying to connect, connect. <laughs> I'm not very well connected right, right now. Uh, I do have a couple of um, websites, but I I I wouldn't invite people there because there's not much on them right now but eventually someday there might be so one of them is called the learning engineer.com it's got like five posts from 2015 things that i was passionate about then i guess i still am passionate about we've yeah. probably covered some of them here yeah um, and then i have a new one which has nothing but placeholders now it's called the retired engineer.com and that one I want to develop into something for, for baby boomers like myself. So. Very cool. Well, I will definitely link those when this episode comes out and uh, look forward to seeing what you're doing with them. And we can, we can work on these new projects together, Dad. <laughs> hey, that sounds great. I could use all the help I could get. <laughs> I am happy to help. And you've always encouraged me to take this path. So it's exciting that it's happening. I'm actually doing it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, you'll do fine. You, you've got a lot of, that's one thing we haven't talked about is confidence. Yeah. What held me back. I think self-confidence was not one of my strong points. Everything was, was an effort. Okay. And so you, you have all the confidence I don't have. So that's, that's going to serve you well, I'm sure. Well, you're, you are too hard on yourself all the time. And <laughs> I, it's a, it's a muscle you have to just build. Like there's days where I still struggle with it too, but it's, I don't know, the more you put yourself out there and do it, the easier it gets. So that's good to know. Doing. Yeah. <laughs> all right, dad.